Genesis chapter 22. Let's begin with verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Then the Lord said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I tell you. Well, we'll get to the specifics of what God was asking Abraham momentarily. I want to begin by discussing this one line. Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. For a measure of context, it's important, you know, it's been between 45 and 50 years since God had promised to provide Abraham and Sarah a male child. And it's been roughly 25 to 30 years since God has made good on that promise by providing them a little boy they named Isaac. As you turn to Genesis 22, their only son Isaac, <laughs> well, he's pushing 30. And Abraham is a spry 130. For a moment, I want you to imagine what this particular season of life had been like for Abraham and Sarah. Not only have they settled into the land that God had given them, not only are they enjoying peace with their neighbors, not only has there been calm, calm in the home, since Hagar and Ishmael had departed. <laughs> and that's a crazy story for another day. But Abraham and Sarah are savoring the son they had waited all of those years to have. After 90 long years, Sarah is relishing the opportunity to be mom, to be needed, to selflessly care for her miracle baby boy. As Isaac grows up, Abraham is thrilled with the opportunity to teach his son things about the Lord. There's no doubt Isaac understands the significance of his birth. I mean, he's the only child in Sunday school whose parents are card-carrying members of the AARP. Isaac's spiritual heritage is indeed profoundly rich. For Abraham and Sarah, life, it's grand. For the first time, they're experiencing the fullness of life that God had promised them so many years before, the life they had originally left Ur to inherit. While it's true, all of these things had taken much longer than they anticipated to come to fruition. Family planning hadn't exactly worked out like they had hoped, Abraham and Sarah, man, they wouldn't have traded these years with Isaac for anything in the world. They truly loved their son. It's not an accident. Genesis 22, verse 2, is the first time in the entire Bible we find the word love. In your study of Scripture, there's what's called the law of first mention. What this means is that the first time a word or an idea is presented in the Bible, that instance, it establishes a baseline for how that idea should be understood moving forward. What makes this so fascinating is that instead of establishing the concept of love within the marital context, the marital relationship between husband and wife, and, and I mean, God could have easily done that, right? All the way back in Genesis 2 with Adam and Eve, God could have introduced the idea of love there. But... God intentionally decides to frame our understanding of love within the context of a father's love for his son. And let me explain for a few minutes here why that's the case, why it's so important. Though a husband and wife no doubt enter into a love relationship through the free will decision each party initially makes and then chooses 
to remain committed to, a father's love for his son. That is a totally unique human experience. I have two sons of my own, Quincy and Theodore. And I can say from personal experience that no father chooses to love a son. Instead, it's that very moment a boy is born into this world that this unexplainable, indescribable kind of love immediately floods his being. In an instance, a bond with that first cry, it's forged. It's magical. It's unbreakable. I mean, I would lay down my life for my baby boy in an instant. As a fact of life, a father's love for a son, it's fundamentally one of nature, not will. Uh, loving a son is never something a father is forced into doing. Yeah, sure, a dad might grow frustrated with a son and even disappointed at times, but nothing ever changes his love. Aside from being distinct from a husband-wife love, it should also be noted that a father-son love is unique to a father-daughter or a mother-son type of love. Now, the nature of the love is the same. I mean, my love for Mabel is identical to the love that I have for Quincy and Theodore. But it's a truth that when a daughter marries another man or a son takes a wife, the way a parent's love manifests towards the child, child of the opposite sex, it automatically well, it has to change. Like, for example, when my daughter Mabel marries, who will be the luckiest man walking the face of the earth, my role will be forced to change. My love won't change, but the way I love, it must. Not to get overly sappy, but this is something I think about every single time I, I hold her little hand in mine. See, there will come a day, Lord willing, in the far, far, far distant future, that I'm no longer going to be my maze protector, defender, provider. No longer will I be the source of her love and affection and safety and security. And what's brutal about it all is that I'm literally going to have to pay tons of money for the privilege of giving away my little angel to another man who will take over my role in her life. Well, different. The same situation doesn't apply to a mom when her son marries. Moms, just like fathers and daughters, moms and sons. When your son says, I do, that gal in white, she will immediately supplant your place as being the most significant woman in his life. You see, when he scrapes his knee, a man should run to his wife and not his mommy. And yet what's really interesting is the same dynamic isn't applicable to a father when his son marries. Unique to all other human interactions, a father's relationship with his son and the way his love manifests towards his son, it never has to change. <laughs> a great way to illustrate this point is that a son will bear his father's name for all eternity. Like, I hope you know, the, the first member of the Holy Trinity isn't actually the father of the second. In fact, when the scriptures refer to Jesus as being the son of God, the idea is that he's of the same nature of God, the son of, making him equal with God. What makes the first mention of love in this story so noteworthy 
is that of all of the human relationships that God could have picked to illustrate the love experienced within his triune nature, God didn't pick the love between a husband or a wife. He doesn't pick the love between a dad and his daughter. He doesn't pick the love between a mom and a son. No, no, no. He singles out the love a father has for a son. Within the context of this Godhead, this tells us that God exists with an eternal love, similar to the father-son dynamic. This is not a, a love of choice or will. It's one of nature. God is immutable. He's unchanging, and so is his love. When you read in 1 John 4, verse 8, that God is love, that idea is best understood by humanity as though God was a father who had an only son named Jesus. It's within the context of Abraham's love for his son Isaac that we then read that God tested Abraham. For starters, I should explain what this doesn't mean. Though some of your translations, mainly the old King James, it uses the word tempt here. There is a reason that the New King James Version, as well as the ESV, uses the word test. While the idea of tempting carries with it a negative connotation, the idea of enticing someone into disobedience, this word test, it indicates that God, He's wanting to reveal something to Abraham. See, God isn't testing Abraham so that he can ascertain some greater insight into Abraham's faith. As if God, the God of the universe, was seeking to learn something he doesn't already know. Additionally, the test wasn't even designed to reveal something to Abraham. Abraham didn't know about himself. Instead, this bizarre instruction, this command to take your only son Isaac and offer him as a burnt offering, it intended to be the mechanism by which God was going to reveal to Abraham something that was vitally important about himself. You see, the fundamental purpose behind this difficult command was to create the perfect set of conditions by which God was going to connect with Abraham in a deeper, more intimate way. Contrary to the cynical accusation, God did not want Abraham to actually sacrifice his son. God wasn't asking Abraham to commit murder, nor was he sanctioning human sacrifice. Look again at the text. God's appeal for Abraham was that he be willing to what? To offer Isaac as a burnt offering. God wasn't asking Abraham to sacrifice his son, but to offer Isaac. In the Old Testament, a burnt offering signified a full or, or a complete consecration because the sacrifice was totally consumed by fire, leaving nothing remaining. A burnt offering demonstrated total surrender to the Lord by the offerer. Like in a sense, there was a reason that God was asking Abraham in this moment to offer the most precious thing in his life. See, in Isaac rested more than Abraham's offspring or his lineage. Isaac was more than just the sole heir, more than his hopes and dreams. As his only son, Isaac represented Abram's entire assurance, his complete confidence that God was going to provide a Savior through that boy's lineage, a Savior for sin God had promised him so many years before. It's within this context of Abraham's love 
for his only son Isaac that God now asks him to make the ultimate offering. In order for Abraham to relate to an aspect of God the Lord wanted to reveal, good old Abe had to first be willing to trust the future and well-being of his son, the thing he loved more than anything else, to the will and the purposes of God. (laughs) Back to our story. You'll notice the only specific instruction God gives Abraham is that he and Isaac pack up and go to the land of Moriah to one of the mountains which I shall tell you. In the Hebrew, this word Moriah, it means chosen by Jehovah. Fitting title. In essence, God's saying, go to the land that I've chosen, to a mountain, I'll show you. It's evident there was a very specific place that God is wanting to teach a very important lesson to Abraham. Verse 3, so Abraham, Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. I love how this begins. Abraham rose early in the morning. I think it's important to give credit where credit's due. Abraham has been given a set of impossible instructions to offer his only son Isaac. And yet, don't forget, Abraham has also been given the promise that God is going to use this situation, this offering, to reveal something about himself to Abraham. He has to be obedient. So the old man wastes no time. He rises early. He personally prepares all the necessary items for the journey, even going so far as to split the wood for the burnt offering. Then Abraham recruits two young men to travel with he and Isaac. They saddle the donkey. They all head north to the land of Moriah. Now Abraham is presently in part of the, the land of Israel known as Beersheba. It's in the far south. So it takes them, we're told, three days to make the journey. And then on the third day, Abraham lifts his eyes and he sees the place afar off. Imagine what that trip must have been like. Imagine that sinking feeling Abraham must have experienced when he looked up and saw the place. I mean, Abraham is the only one in this caravan who actually knows why they're going to Moriah. And yet, this statement that Abraham makes to his young men, it reveals so much more is happening in his heart than what he was just able to see. Like, he tells the young men, to hang back. He explains that he and Isaac were going alone, specifically in order to, note, worship. Again, what makes that significant is it's also the first mention of worship in the Scriptures. In the Hebrew, the word we find for worship is shakah. It means to bow down or to prostrate oneself in homage. The context for this first mention is also revealing. Abraham and Isaac We're not going to Moriah to sing songs. Nor does he say anything specifically of their intention to make an offering. Instead, he tells the young men they're going to the mountain not to make an offering, not to sing songs. They're going to worship. And don't miss the implications of this first mention of worship. See, Abraham viewed his decision to obey God so that he could connect with God on a deeper level 
He viewed that as being worship. As such, I hope you know, worship is much more than an act before God. Worship at its core is the pursuit of knowing God. Worship is the desire to commune with God in a real, tangible way. Also notice what else Abraham says to the young men. He says, we will come back to you. Interesting, isn't it? You see, in fact, it really reveals quite a bit about Abraham's internal thought process during these three days. Like on one hand, Abraham knows he's going to offer Isaac as a burnt offering, which might very well result in the death of his son. But on the other hand, Abraham has no doubt at all that Isaac was the son of promise. Abraham was confident that God was going to create through Isaac a nation, a nation through which he'd provide a savior. As a result, Abraham knew that whatever happened on the mountain, Isaac would return. So think about that. If Abraham understood Isaac might die, but he's confident Isaac will live, <laughs> how do you reconcile the two? Like for the answer to that question, you turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through, seven, through 19. I'll read it for you. We're told by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise, promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding, so this is Abraham's conclusion, that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. You see, Abraham, how he reconciles the two, I might have to offer Isaac, he might die, but Isaac is the son of promise, so he'll live. You know, even if I offer him, God will resurrect him. First mention of resurrection. Verse 6. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering. He laid it on Isaac, his son. Abraham took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Then Isaac said, Look, the fire, the wood, but where is the lamb for, the, for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. <laughs> As they're making their way up this mountain, you can imagine Isaac, who again is 30 years old. <laughs> He's beginning to notice something amiss. Like he rightly understood they were going up this mountain to worship. Abraham had said as such. And Isaac knew as part of their worship, they were likely going to be making an offering before the Lord. I mean, why else would he be carrying so much wood? And yet, it was odd. There's a, the wood. There's the fire. There's a knife. But where's the offering? In fact, Isaac even asks. He says, Dad, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And, and notice Abraham's reply. He says, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Now, tragically, the English translators butcher the radical nature of what Abraham is actually saying. And they butcher it because they add into, into the English translation of the Hebrew the word for. They do this for clarity, but the contrary result happens. You see, if you remove the word for... Abraham is actually answering Isaac's question, where is the lamb, by saying the following. Don't miss it. 
my son, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Like, please take note of what happens following Abraham's reply to Isaac's question. In verse 6, we read, and the two of them went together. But in verse 8, after Abraham has answered Isaac, we now read, so the two of them went together. Like the implications of this subtle detail are significant. This change from and to so shouldn't be overlooked. You see, after Abraham explained to Isaac what they were heading to Moriah to accomplish, Isaac has now willingly surrendered himself to the will of his father. And the two of them went. Isaac's along for the journey. So the two of them went tells you that Isaac has the complete picture as well. Verse 9, Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. (laughs) Remember, Isaac's not a little boy. He's a full-grown man. And his father is 130 years old, meaning meaning he's, he's not exactly a spring chicken. I mean, at what point... Does Isaac kind of take a step back from this whole situation and say to himself, you know, eh, enough's enough. Like carrying the wood and seeing the fire without an offering, yeah, that warranted the question, where's the offering? Abraham's response, God will provide himself the lamb, ah, that sufficed. And yet, now that they've reached the place on the mountain and Abraham has built an altar, this request for Isaac to you know, keep his feet together and, and his arms behind his back, <laughs> that would have been a clear cause for concern. But amazingly, not only is Isaac obedient, like all the way up to that point, but he even submits to Abraham to lay down upon the altar. Verse 10, And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son, Abraham and Isaac are completely committed, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. And then then Moses interjects here. He says, as it is to this day, and the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. And your seed, all the nations of the earth, shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. For starters, this reference to the angel of the Lord. And and notice, it's, it's a capital A. This presents what is known in Scripture as a Christophany. It is a pre-incarnate appearance 
of Jesus. Literally, the voice calling out, Abraham, Abraham from heaven. It was the voice of Jesus to stop steady his hand. See, there was no need for Abraham to slay Isaac. And to their great relief, they discover there was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. They end up sacrificing to the Lord. So, (laughs) what was the whole point behind the exercise? Simple. In asking this old man to offer his only son Isaac, whom he loved with his whole heart, God was revealing to Abraham what his salvation would require, and in turn, how deeply God loved him. Notice, Abraham eventually calls the location where all these things took place, the Lord will provide, or Jehovah Jireh in Hebrew. What what this means is that Abraham, he understood something amazing. Abraham understood it would be in that very location on a mountain in the land of Moriah that God himself would provide his only begotten son to atone for the sins of the world. Again, to this point, some 600 years after the event, as Moses is is recording the details, in verse 14, he confirms this very belief that Abraham knew what was going on. Moses says, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. That, that The term it, the definitive article here, it, it's literally in the mount of the Lord, it, the Savior, the Son of God, would be seen, would be revealed. I'm convinced that Abraham fully understood what God was revealing to him. He understood the ramifications, the big picture, which explains, interestingly enough, what Jesus would say in John chapter 8. Jesus told a a group of Pharisees, Sadducees, the scribes, a a group of of haters. He said to them, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. And so the Jews said to Jesus, you're not yet 50 years old. How have you seen Abraham? But Jesus replied, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Like to this point, think back to Abe's original answer to Isaac's question. Where is the lamb? He replies, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering. You know, in addition to love and worship, this is also the first time in the Old Testament that we have the word lamb being used. And what makes that incredible is that the first time the word lamb is found in the New Testament. It's not in the Gospel of Matthew or Mark or Luke. Instead, the first time you find the word lamb isn't until John chapter 1, verse 29. You see in this passage, John the Baptist. He sees Jesus approaching, coming down to the Jordan River. And he makes this bold declaration. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Isaac asks his father Abraham, Where is the Lamb? In response, Abraham says, God will provide himself the lamb. But then John declares of Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God. In all three instances, we have another definite article, the lamb. Millions of lambs had been sacrificed throughout Jewish history. And yet 25 years after the fact, 
It's John the Baptist who answers Isaac's original question, confirming Abraham's reply about Jesus. You see, in Jesus, God was providing himself the lamb. Regarding God's plan for salvation, it's important you realize this story, this story illustrates the reality. This task of saving you from sin, it could only be accomplished one way with a father and a son working together. You know, if you look back at our text, you'll notice how Abraham leaves the two young men behind so that he and Isaac could go forward alone. The truth is Abraham and Isaac, father and son, they were going to a place to do something that no other servant could follow or participate in. What would happen on this mountain in Moriah was a work that necessitated their involvement and obedience and no one else. <laughs> the application for you and I as servants of the Most High God, it's profound and challenging. In much the same way as Abraham and Isaac here in Genesis 22, when it comes to the atoning of your sin and mine, when it comes to our salvation, being forgiven and made right, there is equally nothing any of us can contribute to that work. There's nothing we can add, nothing we can do. Your salvation is a work accomplished only by the Father and the Son. As I consider this story, Abraham's faith is commendable, no question about it. But it's Isaac's faith that's radical, isn't it? Like, it's astonishing that under the circumstances, he so completely trusted his father, doesn't he? Like, Isaac isn't just a participant. He is a willing participant. Isaac, knowing what was being accomplished, knowing the big picture, he surrendered his life into the hands and will of his father. Not only does Isaac allow Abraham to bind him, not only does he allow himself to be laid upon the altar, even as his father raises up a blade to offer him as a sacrifice, but it's actually Isaac who ends up carrying the wood up the mountain for his own execution. Did you see that? Abraham laid on Isaac the wood. What a picture we have of Jesus. In John 19, we read, Then Pilate delivered him to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away, and he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. You know, in John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus affirms, he says, no one takes my life from me. No one does. But I lay it down of myself. It's not an accident. It's actually Jesus, the angel of the Lord that stops Abraham from offering Isaac. As such, Isaac, he presents for us a picture of Christ. Abraham, God the Father. See, as sinful men... Their offering, if they had completed their work, it wouldn't have been an acceptable sacrifice. You see, the truth is there is only one human sacrifice that God would ever or could ever accept for the atonement of sin. That sacrifice, not anything you sacrifice, not anything I sacrifice, not something Abraham would sacrifice. No, the only sacrifice that God would accept would be a sacrifice he would offer. The son he would slay. 
this phrase, the Lamb of God. It's not the Lamb of, of men or man. It's not your Lamb that you are sacred. No, it's God's Lamb. God would provide Himself the Lamb. See, it would only be through the sacrifice of His own Son, Jesus, the perfect Lamb, who could take away the sins of the world. One of the real tragic misconceptions of the story is the notion our willingness to sacrifice the things we care deeply about in some way brings us closer to God. Like, you'll hear pastors even exhort congregations from this passage. Are you willing to place the Isaacs in your life upon the altar? What a bastardization of such an amazing passage. You see, in contrast, this story intends to illustrate something incredible, something amazing, something astonishing. It illustrates that our relationship with God, your relationship with God and mine, is completely based on the one sacrifice God would make on our behalf. Your sacrifices matter not. The only sacrifice that matters, the only lamb, is that God would provide himself. Friend, this story, this story isn't about our sacrifices. This story is an illustration of His. Like to this point, after the events of this day, we read that, that Jesus comes a second time to Abraham. And what does He say? He says, by myself I have sworn. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you. Like in the end, it wasn't Abraham's obedience that brought about the blessings of God in his life. Instead, his obedience only served to demonstrate faith. Faith in a Savior, which would be the cause of all the blessings in his life. And in asking Abraham to offer his only son on a mountain in Moriah, God was allowing Abraham to experience what he would personally encounter when he had to offer his only begotten son to be the sacrifice to die for the sins of the world. Amazingly, it would be on that same mountain in Moriah named Calvary that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The truth is that through this exercise of offering Isaac, Oh, God revealed something to Abraham, didn't he? See, Abraham came to understand firsthand what it would cost God personally when he offered Jesus to be the Savior for man's sin. And because Abraham was obedient, because he was willing to offer his son, he now knew, he understood, the light went off, how much God loved him. Abraham could relate to the depths of God's love. What blows my mind about this story is that it really does illustrate the truth of God's love for you. If you miss anything else from this study, don't miss this point. This story illustrates that God loves you enough to sacrifice His only Son. His willingness to sacrifice such a beloved thing it implies that His love for you, His love for me, it knows no bounds. As the Father, 
God made the ultimate sacrifice. And as the Son, Jesus, submitted to this destiny, what an expression of true love. And the reason? You. He loves you that much. Charles Spurgeon, he once wrote, So strange, so boundless was the love which pitied dying men. The Father sent His equal Son to give them life. One of the strange components of the story is a detail buried in verse 19. Like originally, Abraham instructed his servants to lag behind with the donkeys, right? Saying, the lad and I will go yonder, we'll worship, and we will come back to you. And yet, as our story closes, did you notice? We read that Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. Do you notice what's missing? Me and the lad will go back to worship. But only Abraham comes back. Isaac is missing. M.I.A. Abraham says they would return, but it's only Abraham that comes back. And if you were one of these servants, one of these young lads, like that situation would have been highly suspect. In fact, it might even have led you to the conclusion that Isaac was dead. And yet, you would have been completely wrong. You see, while it's true that Isaac walks off the scene, we know he was very much alive. Like, well, like what's interesting about this development is the next time in the Scriptures, in the book of Genesis, that Isaac resurfaces, it's at the end of Genesis 24. When Isaac walks out into a field to receive a bride. A bride that the father had sent a trusted servant by the name of Eleazar to bring back for his son. A bride. This word Eleazar, it, it means spirit. What a picture, right? God offers his son. Some people thought he was dead, but he wasn't. And the next time we see Jesus, the Holy Spirit is bringing to him a bride. What's astounding about the story of Isaac and Jesus is that what appeared to at first maybe have been their demise proved to be nothing but a false assumption. While it may be true Jesus' journey necessitated His death, <laughs> His death, it was followed by resurrection and life. As we close out our time, I want you to know the implications of a risen Jesus. My friend, when Jesus rose from that tomb, three days after his crucifixion. And that moment, you and I could know with certainty that his sacrifice for sin as the Lamb of God had truly been accepted. You see, a risen Jesus, it means there exists an active Savior. A Savior who's alive. And he wants to save you from your sin. John 15, Jesus would say, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then Jesus defines what true love looks like. He says, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. i got to be real with you this morning. For many of you, okay, for all of you, I would lay down my life. I know where I'm going. Ain't no problem. God's in control, and 
I know there's nothing but glory that awaits me. And so if the situation uh, arose, if it presented itself, and, and I had to choose between your death or mine, hey, no greater love than, than a man would lay down his life for his friends. But I tell you what I won't do. <laughs> if you make me choose, am I going to lay down the life of, of Theodore or Quincy or Mabel, one of my children? You're in trouble, bud. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like to lay, if I have to lay down my life, yeah, I'll do it. But to sacrifice a son? You see, what this story tells us, first, is that I'm not God, and we're all thankful for that. But listen, if you want to really know what true love looks like, look no farther, look no further than a father willing to lay down the life of his only son for you. So, Father, Lord, we thank you for that word.